Hello and welcome. This is Talking Aerospace Today, the podcast for the aerospace and defense industry and the trends that drive the digital enterprise, a place that brings the promise of tomorrow's technology to the ears of our listeners today. And I'm your host, Scott Salzweedle. Welcome to episode four, our final episode in the series. In this episode, we'll be talking about what it takes to design and build a supersonic aircraft. Pretty cool, huh? Before we dive in, a reminder that our first episode covered aerospace program planning and execution. Episode two touched on the future of aerospace. And episode three covered aerospace verification management and certification. I urge you to give those previous episodes a listen. You'll find our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts, or wherever you go to listen to your favorite podcast. Okay, I'm excited to get started. So supersonic flight, I cannot believe we're even having this conversation, but it's true. There's a handful of new supersonic jet companies out there. There's new technology for sure. And there's an appetite for better, faster travel. This could be the dawning of a new age in high-speed transport. During this time of innovation and digital transformation, the sky's the limit when it comes to supersonic flight. Literally, okay, well, maybe up to 60,000 feet. Now, we all remember the Concorde from 15 years ago, still an engineering marvel and very much ahead of its time. But let's be real, the Concorde had its detractors. Primarily, people were against the noise, the sonic boom, and the emissions. Will today's supersonic aircraft address those issues? The short answer is yes. And we'll be talking about that in our podcast today. So our episode, What It Takes to Build a Supersonic Aircraft, will touch on some of the key drivers, technology enablers that are allowing supersonic flight to reignite. What about external aerodynamics, thermal systems? Of course, propulsion is key. There's also huge issues around thermal dynamics and structural integrity. We'll talk about those issues and more. I'm happy to have a collection of highly talented experts with me today to discuss what it takes to build a supersonic aircraft in the year 2020. Joining me first is Dale Tutt from Siemens Digital Industry Software. At Siemens, Dale is known as the go-to guy for all things aerospace and defense. Welcome back to the show, Dale. It's great to have you. Hey, thanks, Scott. It's really great to be with you uh, for our final episode in this podcast series. We've had a couple of good discussions, as you mentioned in the previous podcast. Uh, the last episode, we talked about verification management and, and how it really can help you manage that process. And you know, certification is critical for every company that wants to sell commercial aircraft, and it's a major cost and schedule driver for these programs. And as aircraft have become more complex, the certification requirements have also become more rigorous. And uh, you know, having a solid process in place is the key to navigating through the, uh, all the complexities of certification so that you can show compliance, that you've adequately analyzed and tested your product and have met all of the requirements. And so uh, it's a great topic, uh, but today I'm going to really enjoy the, today's topic. It's a fun topic. So thank you for having me today. It's nice to have you, Dale. Really appreciate you stopping by. So a little bit more about Dale. Dale is the VP of Aerospace and Defense at Siemens. He has over 30 years experience in engineering, design, development, and program leadership within the aerospace industry. He specializes in building highly effective cross-functional teams to achieve complex operations when building today's aircraft. Before Siemens, Dale worked at the Spaceship Company, which is now part of Virgin Galactic, Techstar Aviation, and Bombardier Aerospace. So Dale, I'm curious... What is the business case for developing supersonic aircraft? You know the old saying, time is money. And if you're an executive of a, of a business, time is very critical for you. And if you have to fly across the USA from going from New York to Los Angeles or going overseas, you know, it might take her nearly six hours or eight hours. And most of the airliners and business jets today really top out around Mach 0.8, so about 550 miles per hour. And there's some business jets out there, you know, like the Citation 10 or the Gulfstream 650 
that they increased its speed to just over Mach 0.9, but this has really been kind of an upper limit for a lot of these aircraft today. So, you know, they're only a limited amount of time savings. But if you can push that speed to higher speed, you know, like like where Arion uh, is planning for up to Mach 1.4 and, and some of the other programs out there, they're pushing, uh, you know, up to Mach 1.8, uh, you can really reduce the duration of that cross-country trip, maybe 40%, 50%, and that's saving valuable time. So instead of spending two or three days out of the office, now you can start looking at a much shorter trip and maybe even doing one of these trips in, in just over a day. And so if you're going overseas, this time savings is an even greater benefit. And so when you think about the, the hundreds of airliners that are built each year for all these long-haul routes going you know, these international routes are also just going, you know, cross country, like from, you know, across the U.S. And then there's a hundred or so of these long range business jets that are being produced every year. There's there's an attractive market for supersonic airliners and in, in these business jets. So it's really not about just having a kind of a super fast sports car as a jet. It's really about companies being much more efficient and effective with their time. And that's the business case. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But won't supersonic flights be heavy on maintenance due to the um, like the economies of scale? And you know, I just, how can an aircraft be produced and stay cost effective? I, I just, it, it, how, how do you square that up? You know, it's certainly a consideration, but when you think about the new design and manufacturing capabilities that are available now versus what was available 40, 50 years ago when the Concorde was first developed, you know, we're really in a much better situation to be able to manage these costs. And so when you apply a comprehensive digital twin for your product and your production and your product support, it really is a difference maker. So having this digitalization and this this virtual product, uh, it really helps you design your product faster and better and and really to apply new manufacturing techniques and automation to, to really optimize the production line. So uh, you can really look at more effective ways to support the product once it's in the field. And so across the entire product lifecycle, you're able to get it right the first time and you're able to effectively bring the, those economies of scale down to a number that's really well within the production rates and usage of, of what a supersonic aircraft would see. I have to ask, what about the environmental concerns? We're moving towards a carbon neutral economy. At least we're trying anyway. So how does this fit in? Yeah, you know, again, the world really has changed a lot in the last 50 years, and it's much more feasible now to design and target more carbon neutral supersonic solutions or certainly uh, much more efficient solutions. And, you know, so one of the things I find attractive about working with a company like Arion is that they're developing a sustainable carbon neutral aircraft, and it's, it's their goal. And this is if you talk to the all of the companies that are out there working on it, that's that's their goal is to be more carbon neutral. And it's a very ambitious goal, but it addresses a major concern for their customers, the regulators, the governments, and, and quite frankly, the general public. And so, you know, really what's changed in the design? You know, engines are a lot more efficient than they used to be. There's been new design solutions, new materials that have brought significant advancements in the amount of fuel that's needed for this mission. So right off the top, you use less carbon. The aircraft systems themselves are becoming much more efficient, and many have switched from mechanical systems to electrical systems. And when you do this change, you get significant improvements in the power efficiency of these systems. And so these electrical systems are very efficient from a power standpoint. So if your systems are 30% more efficient, you burn less fuel to power them. So again, you get a savings. And then finally, I think the aerodynamics. There's, there's a lot of new uh, CFD analysis solutions that have made it a lot easier for companies to find more efficient aerodynamic designs uh, for supersonic operations. 
these new designs of, the, of these high-speed aircraft are, are just beautiful. They're just gorgeous designs. Let's get to the heart of the matter now. Why supersonic aircrafts are so challenging to build. And I first want to address that pesky sonic boom. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it was definitely a challenge for the Concorde. And, and that's the reason it was largely limited to overseas routes. It could only be supersonic when it was over the water. And so whenever it was over land, it had to stay subsonic so that it would not create a sonic boom and create unnecessary noise. When you think about, you know, just limited to being over water, it's not very efficient uh, and you don't get the, the full time savings that you could. So there have been a lot of studies over the years since the Concorde around making quiet booms and boomless aircraft. And, you know, CFD and acoustic simulations have really helped companies uh, understand what, what drives a boom. And so they've looked at different aircraft shapes. They're looking at altitudes, speeds, uh, really kind of a little bit of everything. And as a result, engineers are finding that they can now fly at supersonic speeds and be effectively boomless, even when they're flying over land and populated areas. So it's a much different situation now than when the Concorde uh, first came out. I like the term boomless. I'm sure that'll catch on. So let's talk a little bit more in depth about the, the challenges now. What are the toughest challenges facing aerospace manufacturers? It starts with, I think, the aerodynamics. It's making sure that you find the right balance in in the shapes that are very efficient from an aerodynamic standpoint. You may be relying more on your CFD analysis than just using wind tunnels and flight testing. And, and you're balancing that with finding efficient designs that work well at both supersonic and subsonic speeds because you still want to be efficient even when you're at subsonic speeds because you're coming in and, and landing in an area or you're taking off and flying through an area where you need to be subsonic. And then finally, the uh, aircraft designs themselves that help shape the shockwave that creates the boom. So that's one of the challenges. The systems development are also challenging, and it's about you know, finding some efficient solutions for uh, being more efficient systems. Sometimes you have thinner, thin wings, and so you need to be able to make the systems fit. But this really, this, uh, this concept of transitioning to more electric solutions that tend to be more complex and contain software. So that adds a system development challenge. And then with the airframe and with the systems, and you, you also have thermal management. So you think about thermal heating of the airframe and, and how do you manage this during flight? There's been aircraft out there that they grow several inches in flight just due to the aerodynamic heating. And so it's a very real problem that these companies, these uh, aircraft have to deal with. And then finally, rejecting heat from the aircraft systems themselves. And so there's, there's a complexity of that problem. And finally, I think just the engines as well, needing to be able to design these inlets and nozzles and the blades and with new materials. So bringing all those together with your aerodynamics, your systems, and your thermal management really really does create an interesting set of challenges that companies have to work with. It's time now to bring in some heavyweights who specialize in the areas you just mentioned. With us is Darrell Rittenberg. He's the Director of Aerospace and Defense for Sims Center at Siemens. And Terry Ulbricks, Director of Sims Center Aerospace Solutions, who's also from Siemens. Guys, welcome to Talking Aerospace Today. Very good to be with you and Dale today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Scott. I can't wait to get started. I am honored to be here. Oh, thanks, guys. It's, it's really nice to have you here. So what I'm going to do now is something rather unusual. I'm going to hand over the yoke to Dale. I think I can trust him at this speed and altitude. Plus, he can be much harder on you guys. So, so Dale? <laughs> uh, thanks, Scott. Uh, 
Nothing better than sitting and chatting about uh, designing and building supersonic aircraft. So uh, the pleasure is all mine. And Darrell and, and Terry, uh, you know, looking forward to the discussion. But uh, I'm very excited to start talking about supersonic design and simulation and the engineering that goes into it. And so I'll start with you, Darrell. So Darrell, what are some of the primary design concepts and challenges behind solving uh, aerodynamics in, in these modern supersonic aircraft? It's interesting because aerodynamics, as you might think, obviously it's all around efficiencies and how can we reduce drag so that we can increase range. And uh, that all feeds into, while reducing the sonic boom, I'm actually fortunate enough to be part of an organization that looks at sonic boom and uh, AIAA actually has a workshop called the Sonic Boom Prediction Workshop, which actually increases the fidelity of the type of simulations that are used to predict that kind of noise. And we've done a fair amount of work as an organization with companies like Spike Aerospace and Arion around how to leverage computational methods to reduce the sonic boom. And at the same time, look for aerodynamic efficiencies. So that is really looking at how do you decrease the drag so you can ultimately increase the range and there's probably one other thing that uh, in the context of aerodynamics that often gets overlooked, and that is what's the, the overall environment inside the cabin? Because aircraft noise, airframe noise, is something that can propagate into the cabin. And you, know, you talk about these business people wanting to, to get across the ocean as fast as possible. If they did that in an environment that's uncomfortable, that's noisy, uh, it's not going to be as productive for them. So you really have to think about all of these things in the context of, of aerodynamics. It's more than just the shape. It's really looking at all of those components, the noise, the shape, the environment within the cabin. Yeah, that's uh, it's pretty cool. And so what are customers doing to solve this? I know that they can do wind tunnel and there's some amount of flight testing that they can do. But, but you know, how are they really solving all of those challenges today? It's interesting. When it comes to wind tunnels and supersonic wind tunnels in particular, there are very few options out there. NASA has a few, DLR has a few, but there just aren't as many facilities. So the industry has really relied on computational methods. And there's some great news in that endeavor because over the last 10 years, the availability of large computational resources has fundamentally changed the game. People are now applying computational fluid dynamics calculations early in the design process and throughout the entire operating envelope. You talked about having to fly subsonic and supersonic. Now they can actually look at that entire mission profile and, and start to develop databases of, uh, let's say, the aerodynamics of a vehicle and the control systems requirements for a vehicle across that entire mission profile. And that's only really something that's been available to organizations that uh, I would say, you know, small, mid-size and, and large organizations in the last 10 years. This is something truly unique. And actually, uh, there were a number of workshops recently that talked about what are those enabling technologies. And, and if we start to think about supersonic, but, you know, there are people out there like uh, Hermes who are trying to build a hypersonic commercial jet, which is, you know, now we're talking Mach uh, 3.5 to 5. Boy, 
None of that's even possible without fluid dynamics calculations. And, and of course, that supplements what you do in the wind tunnel, because at the end of the day, no organization is going to certify an aircraft purely on CFD. They're going to require some wind tunnel and flight test to basically build out that means of compliance. So it's a very exciting time and, and fluid dynamics, to be frank. You know, that's pretty cool stuff. We, uh, you know, when you think about the challenges and the investment that you're making in, in the design of an airplane like this, uh, or actually, you know, think hi- hypersonic even better. The amount of investments that you have to make and, and, you know, anything that we can do to help minimize that risk is they're going into flight test. And, and then, you know, as you said, you know, both from an aerodynamic standpoint, but also the cabin interior being able to manage that noise, you're banking a lot on the, uh, the, the results of those CFD tools. So how are we helping our customers with this? I mean, that's how are we helping them manage that risk and, and, uh, and use those tools? Well, today we're lucky enough to work with a number of uh, aircraft programs that are trying to bring these vehicles to market. Uh, Arion, I think you've already talked about, Spike Aerospace is another, and there's several others that um, that we could talk to as well. But we're actually working with them to bring both expertise in the area of fluid dynamics and how you can use computational methods beyond aerodynamics, looking at uh, structural dynamics, looking at systems integration, systems um, simulation. We kind of bring our our competencies to an organization, our experience, and uh, the other thing that we're helping them with is how to tie that into their overall digital thread, which is a critical component here. It's one thing to do a simulation. It's another thing to bring that simulation into the design process and be able to trace that back to a requirement and ultimately how that requirement goes to certification. And it that's kind of our vision and the way that we work with customers is to help bring together the technical competencies, the tools uh, within the portfolio to provide accurate simulation results, and of course, bringing that into the digital thread as a way to kind of help them accelerate that certification process. Well, moving on, you know, the, the, another big piece of that puzzle, as I mentioned earlier, is the engine design and, and the propulsion and the dynamics. And, and I think about some of the older designs where they had movable or, uh, you know, adjustable inlets and even adjustable nozzles and how they've looked at, you know, some of the, some of the new inlets or new inlet designs are looking at new shapes and maybe looking at bump inlet inlets as they're looking at the engine and the, the, the propulsion side of things, you know, so what are some of the things that companies are doing? What are their, some of their challenges uh, and what are they doing to solve those today? It's, it's interesting. There's actually, you know, three challenges that I've seen as kind of the dominant challenges, especially in the context of aerodynamics. You hit on the first one, which is inlet design. And, and boy, I tell you, inlet design for a transonic aircraft, where you basically don't have much of an inlet, you have a cowling going directly into the fan and into the engine. Now, that kind of design is a little easier, but when you get into supersonic, if you have supersonic flow going into an engine, you can choke it. You basically stop uh, the efficiency of the engine. And in the worst case scenario, you can stall. And so when you think about inlet design, and I'm actually uh, part of a a technical committee with AIAA called Inlets, Nozzles, and Propulsion System Integration, we are looking at uh, furthering the state of the art in inlet design for supersonic and subsonic uh, vehicles alike. We look at those challenges and, and say, you know, how can we help organizations help to design an inlet? And it's it's an interesting aside, but kind of funny. Uh, at the most recent conference, which is actually um, about two weeks ago for propulsion and energy, there was a whole section 
on inlet design related to the Concorde. Here we are, years and years later. That was, you know, designed in the in the 60s and 70s, and we're still trying to understand how those engineers were able to design such an efficient inlet design without all these computational methods. But we're learning from that, and we're applying those strategies, and really helping organizations push the state of the art. And the last thing uh, that we're seeing is around engine integration. You, know, you talked about these new engines. They are more efficient, but they're more efficient by running hotter. They run a little leaner. And so you have a tremendous amount of heat that's going into that cowling. And how do you make sure that you have adequate cooling? How do you make sure that you have adequate uh, flow through so that your engine can maintain its durability across uh, being able to, to be in service you know, over several decades, which is often what you see for these aircraft. So, so between inlet design, uh, between engine integration, and then really trying to drive the efficiencies. You know, how do you uh, make those inlets work within that, uh, that mission profile when they're in cruise? You want the absolute best aerodynamics uh, while still maintaining good, clean air into the engine. So it's a, it's a difficult problem, but we've been working uh, with many organizations to help, again, move the state of the art. That's excellent stuff. It's uh, and it is amazing what they were able to design with the Concorde. Your your story about how they're trying to sort that out is just fascinating. Uh, but uh, so, what are we doing to help out with some of these customers? Are we doing anything in addition to what we're doing? What you're doing with AIAA? Do we have other things that we're working on with some of our customers on these areas? Well, we're actually it's it's interesting because we're actually working with both the engine manufacturers. So we're working with several of the the big engine manufacturers who are going to be providing the engines for these supersonic aircraft. In that case, we're working more on, on the efficiencies, on the thermal balance, on the durability. And at the same time, we're working with the integrators on inlet design. And we're actually bringing to that discussion both our experience and, again, our portfolio of tools. So we, we have kind of a wide array of mixed fidelity solutions that can really be helpful, especially early in the process. Again, uh, all of this is supported by having access to this digital thread so you can really tie back the design, the work that you're doing in simulation back to that requirement and really try to push that all the way through once you get into testing and ultimately certification. So we've been very fortunate in working with uh, a lot of these organizations very early in their design process so we can help guide them in terms of some industry best practices as well as uh, obviously some simulation best practices that really help them move the state of the art. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you, Darrell, and outstanding. Terry, I'll, I'll turn to you now. Darrell was mentioning some of the work that we're doing with engines and the, you know, we're running those engines hotter and there's some new challenges with thermal, but uh, can you talk about some of the other challenges uh, in addition to that, that, uh, that customers are facing when they're designing uh, these supersonic aircraft? I believe uh, we already touched upon it, uh, Dale and, and Durell, uh, about, uh, let's say, the heating that the uh, supersonic aircraft is basically subjected to. And it's uh, basically connected to the aerodynamic heating, but also you have a very performant engine that is basically integrated in the aircraft that needs to be ventilated, that needs to be cooled on one side. But on the other side, you also have new systems being integrated. I'm quite sure that uh, the future uh, supersonic aircraft will have much more electrical and, uh, and computer hardware integrated that also needs to be cooled. And so typically when you integrate these electrical systems, they might be 
uh, more reliable and, and more performant. But one of the problems that you have is that they create quite a lot of heat. And also that heat needs to be rejected. Huh? And there's a lot of new ways to look into how can you basically reject that heat. Uh, you might use a fuel tank, for instance, to dump the heat into the fuel tank. But that uh, poses, of course, a lot of problems related to, for instance, when you are at the end of the mission, when your fuel quantity is low, uh, maybe maybe uh, rejecting a lot of heat in the fuel might uh, create flammability problems inside your fuel tank. So you absolutely want to avoid that. Now, when you look into uh, the current aircraft development, we see that uh, when you want to understand the thermal behavior, the thermal balance of the integrated aircraft throughout its mission, you basically are going to ask the different departments, whether it's the hydraulic department, the environmental control system department, the engine integration department, you are going to ask them, well, okay, how much heat do you generate? And how much uh, heat needs to be rejected uh, in a certain way. When you want to understand the thermal balance of the aircraft, you actually need that integrated view of the heat exchanges between the systems. That's often a problem. We see that uh, the different departments, like the hydraulic department, uh, uh, avionics department, etc., they are they do a perfect job in doing the thermal uh, analysis of their individual department. But when it comes to bringing all these heat exchanges together at integrated aircraft level, that is basically typically uh, not done because all the tools that are being used are not uh, um, integratable, cannot be integrated. So that we see quite a lot of problems at the integrated thermal balance uh, analysis at AIL. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. I was uh, thinking about some of the stories I've heard in the past and, you know, the some of the early supersonic aircraft, you know, like they, you know, struggled with like on the XB-70 and even, you know, the thermal heating that the, you know, the SR-71 goes through uh, when it's flying. But, you know, it's a great point, you know, that you know, on subsonic aircraft, it's not uncommon to take these, the, the heat from these mechanical systems and reject that heat to the uh, side of the aircraft where, which is usually cold. Now a different problem when you're supersonic. And so you, it's a little harder to reject heat to a, a, to a warmer surface. So as you say, you talked about the integrated, uh, the balance uh, of the integrated solution. So, so how are we helping with this problem? That's a, sounds like a pretty complex problem. Indeed. So when you want to understand the thermal balance of the integrated aircraft throughout its complete mission, you of course need to understand the thermal balance of each of the individual systems. That's where we typically advise our customers to uh, implement a virtual integrated aircraft analysis capability where you basically do for each individual department your thermal analysis, but where we also allow to basically bring all that data, all these models together at an integrated uh, level and uh, allow the customers to, yeah, even in very early phases, Dale, of the aircraft development, look into what might be the best architecture, the best system architecture, what might be the best location in the avionic base to put the avionics, uh, uh, should you uh, basically distribute your electrical systems and uh, avionic systems in different avionic bays, or do you concentrate them in, 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 in only a few of them? What does it mean with respect to the connection to the envir environmental control system? Are you going to use an, an, an electrical system or are you going to use the more classical bleed air system to cool your systems, et cetera, et cetera? So we allow the customers 
in our modeling capabilities to create a dynamic thermal model that is capable to look into that thermal balance. It's not only thermal balance, also energy balance in a more integrated and model-based way. That's a great concept on the virtual integrated aircraft and and using it with the thermal thermal heating. But uh, I remember going through several development programs and we built these massive systems integration test rigs where we'd basically put all of the systems hardware in a loop. Are customers being able to, to, how are they solving that problem? Are they still needing to build the big systems uh, systems test rigs or are they being able to show more and more of this with the virtually integrated aircraft? A very good question, uh, Dale, because uh, as you know, in context of the integration uh, testing of an aircraft, you create an iron bird. Huh? Maybe you create a copper bird in context of a more electrical uh, aircraft. But I guess creating a thermos iron bird would certainly be a bridge too far, isn't it? So uh, <laughs> <laughs> what we actually want to provide to our customers is to create these virtual integrated aircraft models very early in the development phase uh, to, to basically do the trade-off studies and to look for the right architecture for that specific aircraft and for its specific mission, but also basically use these kind of models in context of the integration testing of the systems. And that's where we basically connect the virtual integrated aircraft to the virtual iron bird. So we have been working together, for instance, with Airbus on creating a virtual iron bird uh, a model that basically allows uh, to speed up to uh, shift left the integration testing uh, big time. And so typically you have the flight test, you have the first flight, typically one year before the first flight, you have uh, a physical iron bird that is being powered on. And uh, we believe that uh, actually three years before that, we can actually power on a virtual iron bird, which is uh, giving you quite a lot of insight of how all these systems uh, are going to talk to each other in an, in an energetical way, thermal way, etc. So we have quite a lot of uh, customers using our simulation capabilities in context of that kind of uh, integration testing, uh, model in the lo- loop, software in the loop, hardware in the loop, pilot in the loop type of testing, etc. And related to the thermal management, we strongly believe that simulation can really avoid to create that thermos iron bird, which would be a very expensive one, isn't it? <laughs> definitely, definitely. So, well, it's amazing how much things have changed uh, since, uh, you know, early days when I was involved with a lot of these systems development and these big iron birds and test rigs. And now being able to do that virtually is just uh, pretty, pretty amazing stuff. So thank you, Terry. And, uh, and thank you, Darrell. And uh, Scott, back to you. Great, great conversation. So before we land this plane, Dale, I want to turn this back to you and and ask you to please uh, reemphasize some of uh, some of these important topics around the digital twin, the digital thread, and even Siemens Accelerator. How these technologies are helping customers design, simulate, and build high speed aircraft. Yeah. So it's you know as I mentioned earlier, and a lot of what we've talked about today with the simulation and and the virtual integrated aircraft and the CFD analysis is are just examples of how applying a comprehensive digital twin and thread is really, it's really a difference maker now for designing and producing and supporting these commercial supersonic aircraft. And, and so it's this rich understanding of, of your product design. It's really helped create these boomless designs, help you understand the cabin noise, help you be more aerodynamically efficient. And it's being used to develop more efficient engines and systems, you know, the, the inlets as, as Durrell 
and 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 the systems as, as Thierry was talking about. So the digital thread is connecting all of these elements of this uh, of the aircraft together to really create this virtual integrated aircraft that can be used to support your certification and as well as reducing risk as you move into your flight test and and build. You know, there's a lot of investment in these programs and the ability to help manage that. Uh, with the digital twin is is pretty huge. So, you know, simulating and then virtually commissioning your production lines, you know, as you move into manufacturing, as well as your support processes within this digital twin will also really enable new manufacturing and sustainment methods as you go forward. So you can really, you know, help manage your production rates and lower the cost of your operations. So this is all from the digital threads. So tying it all together from initial requirements um, into design and then into your manufacturing and product support. And so that you can see it transition seamlessly from one phase into the next and, and kind of simulating uh, every step of the way and really using your twin to the full fullest of its uh, potential there. So and this is all within the accelerator portfolio that we have at Siemens. So it's really, you know, pre- really providing that truly comprehensive digital twin to help enable these solutions. And, and we're partnering with companies of all sizes and organizations of all types to help develop some of these exciting new and, and complex processes and products. So pretty well ties it all together. Wow. Well, I think what we've learned is Siemens digital industry software is ahead of the curve in aerospace. There's just no question. And it's no surprise we're bringing the technology of tomorrow to our customers today in a number of real and very innovative ways. So um, thank you for visiting with us today, Dale. Uh, my, my sincere thanks to you. Hey, no problem, Scott. And, and thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun uh, working with you on this podcast series and look forward to the next series. Indeed, indeed. Darrell, Terry, thank you. Uh, such a fascinating and detailed discussion. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, great, Scott, and thanks a lot for uh, giving me the opportunity to be in this podcast. And of course, I'd like to extend my deepest thanks to our listeners. I'm glad you tuned in to the podcast. Thanks, listeners. Now, at the top of the show, I mentioned this is a four-part series. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to dive into previous episodes, please check out the links in the podcast description. Be sure to subscribe to Talking Aerospace today on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go for your favorite podcast. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Talking Aerospace today will be releasing new podcasts in the future, so you don't want to miss out. My name is Scott Salzweedle, and this is Siemens Talking Aerospace Today. I hope you'll join us again for our next podcast. Until then, bye for now. Bye.